0: It's labor and love.
1: You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. a man or women in a cave
2: Don't burn no more. And even the water has stopped flowing. And my poor family is cold and hungry. Why has God forsaken me? His hand long, his feet are hard and bitter. He's standing like walking the streets of New York City. He's almost dead from breathing the air pollution. He tried to vote.
0: Welcome to the Labor and Love Show on a Saturday morning. Working the day shift with you, at least the morning shift, huh? And it is Black History Month. Um, like I say, it's kind of the sashimi approach to history. We slice. We got uh, black history here. We got women's history here. We got white history here which passes as universal history why can't we just have history and recognize one another's history we started out the well that last one of course was Aretha Franklin great Aretha Franklin dearly departed with uh, what's called the black national anthem Lift Every Voice and Sing by James Weldon Johnson. A little more on that in a minute. And before that, we had Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder collaborating on Stevie's song, Living for the City, where Ray Charles breaks in the middle with his, uh, with his commentary. How did I get here with all these rats and uh, rapes and uh, drugs and... uh, Encompassing the experience of African Americans living in the city. And before that, Beverly Crawford with her rendition of what has become kind of the national anthem of this show, You're going to have to serve somebody by Bob Dylan. And yes, you will have to serve somebody. Will it be capital? Will it be labor? Will it be God? Will it be the devil? Will it be the workers in your community, the people who are like you, more like you than unlike you? Or will it be the corporate interests? You're going to have to serve somebody. Lift Every Voice and Sing by James Weldon Johnson was written in 1900. Johnson was... uh, 29 years old at the time, and the song was recorded by his brother J. Rosamond Johnson. And, uh, well, let's see. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty that are rejoicing rise. High as the listening skies, let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song of faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is done. Um... The black national anthem christened uh, the black national anthem james weldon johnson was an american author educator lawyer diplomat songwriter writer civil rights activist born in jacksonville florida in 1871 uh, one of the leaders of the National Association for Colored People where he started working in 1917 1920 was the first African-American to be chosen as executive secretary of that organization imagine that now starting in 1909 Whites had been the executive officers. He worked in that position from 1920 to 1930. U.S. consul to Venezuela. Talk about Venezuela in the news now as the U.S. again tries to intervene in someone else's government in this hemisphere and replace them with someone more acceptable, more oily. Um, become known as the Black National Anthem. James Weldon Johnson. So, yeah, we are... We are treating this week of uh, African American history. We've also got... uh, Reports on the Oakland teachers strike. And how artists are helping that strike. Four black leaders of the labor movement. The great Frank Robinson. Okay, we sometimes we delve into sports here. A week or so ago, we lost uh, Frank Robinson. Real pioneer in uh, sports, in baseball. Microsoft workers are protesting a military deal. Hmm, we'll have to see what that's about. And of course, we have the labor beat. A true artist, someone whose art belongs to all those who love social justice. Juan Alicia Montoya needs help. Jovita Idar, we talked about last week, I think. Taxes, tax the rich. That's where the money is. How about a maximum wage instead of a minimum wage, huh? How about a maximum wage? Been a Republic of Honduras. Denver colleagues take a walk. And uh, a whole lot more. This is Labor and Love Radio. Let's listen right now to um, our World Labor Report, Radio Labor.
3: Radio Labour.
4: This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, February 22nd, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, how unions are helping millions of refugees in Lebanon, the fight against profit-making education corporations in Africa, the World Day for Social Justice, and singing...
5: I'm to the
6: to the oh, you
5: can't scare me. I'm to the Union. I'm to the Union the day I die.
4: This is Radio Labor. There are two million refugees in Lebanon, making up 25% of the total population in the country. Unions are working to get the refugees needed public services and decent work. See Marie Ainsborough reports.
7: Public Services International, the PSI, and Swedish unions have started a campaign to address a severe humanitarian crisis in Lebanon. The PSI is the global union which represents public employee unions at the world level. It has partnered with a number of Swedish unions to help ensure that more than 2 million refugees in Lebanon have access to quality public services and decent work. The refugees, who have fled from the war in Syria make up more than 25% of the total number of people living in Lebanon. A major problem is that many people in Lebanon see the refugees as a burden on the Lebanese economy and a drain on public service funding. They see the refugees as competitors driving down wages. And so the PSI and its partner Swedish unions have started a public awareness campaign, arguing that it is important to promote equality and quality public services for all. Here are some of the Swedish labor leaders who are working on the project.
8: Refugee project is focusing on two things. One is to make sure that refugees in camps get access to quality public services, get access to water, to sanitation, to electricity, to schools, to healthcare. But the other part is also to make sure that The workers, people that work in in refugee camps, also have trade union rights, that they are paid in a sufficient way, that working conditions... So it goes hand in hand to make sure that this works. We
9: really have to focus that this is not about that people are coming to your country trying to steal your job. This is actually people that you are supposed to work with and be solidaric to. That's why you have to involve the trade union here, to
8: do capacity building with the members, to increase the knowledge uh, about the situation for the refugees, and also to work together in order to create jobs for all and decent jobs for all. I think if we
9: don't start somewhere, this is going to be not just the end for the trade union movement, but also the end of peace in Europe.
7: What's happening in Europe is the rise of right-wing populist movements which attack refugees and their rights. These movements are gaining ground in Germany, Hungary, Italy and France. They are also growing in Sweden.
8: We have a debate back in Sweden that is very much similar to other Western countries at the moment, where we have a right-wing populist parties, trying to set the agenda and to put uh, groups against each other. We have resources in in a lot of our countries that we we want to distribute well, but uh, they tend to say that uh, the immigrants are the cause of all the problems and and to simplify reality. But I think what we should always be reminded of is that uh, human rights is for everyone, uh, regardless of borders.
7: Jean-Viev is the PSI's Migration Program Coordinator.
8: PSI has started a project in Lebanon together with Swedish trade unions in order to give a lifeline to those in need. Syrian refugees and the local population are having difficulties accessing health. Many health facilities across the country are dangerously under-resourced and even short of the most basic equipment. There is a great need for a strong public sector to provide the right to health for everyone in Lebanon. This right to health is a shared responsibility. The global community must step up to this.
7: PSI website is at www.world-psi.org.
4: leaders have told African heads of state that their countries need to develop more quality public education systems and not partnerships with for-profit corporations. The labor leaders were attending a meeting of the African Union Assembly of Heads of State in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Assisting the African labor leaders were representatives of Education International. EI is the Global Union for Teachers and Other Educators. I talked to Angelo Gravelatos, about the meeting in Addis Ababa. Mr. Gravalatos is the project director at EI, responsible for issues related to the privatization of education. I asked him, what is EI's biggest concern about education in Africa?
10: Well, achieving quality public education for all in Africa is a priority for Education International. It's a priority for our member organizations across Africa. Last week, alongside the African Union Heads of State meeting in Addis Ababa, our elected leaders, our elected African leaders assembled in order to send a very clear message to their heads of state. And that clear message is summarised in three clear points. Number one, reject privatisation and profit-making in education. Prioritise the achievement of inclusive and equitable education and realise the internationally agreed minimum level of investment necessary to achieve quality education for all, namely 6% of a country's GDP and not less than 20% of the national budget being allocated and invested in education.
4: I have heard that there are for-profit companies trying to take over the education systems of African countries, companies such as Bridge International Academies. Was this raised at the meeting in Addis Ababa?
10: Well, certainly last week in Africa, in Addis Ababa, our leaders did put the spotlight on uh, Bridge International Academies. Bridge International Academies is a US corporation supported by intergovernmental agencies such as the World Bank, such as the UK's aid agency, DFID, uh, Zuckerberg, Gates, the world's largest edu business, Pearson, they support this corporate actor, uh, aggressive in their own words, corporate actor that is seeking to exploit the aspirations of the poor across Africa. This is a for-profit chain. It operates, rather, as a for-profit chain in Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, and in Liberia. It has been courtesy of a government, the former government. It, uh, it operates a number of public schools that were outsourced to it. Bridge International Academies, it should be noted, operates on the basis of maximising profit at the expense of quality. Their business plan includes employing unqualified staff and a highly scripted model, highly standardised model of education where these facilitators, they're not teachers, read word for word off the script of a tablet and in facilities that the Ugandan minister described as putting the health and safety of students at risk.
4: February 20th is the World Day for Social Justice, a day set aside by the United Nations to remind people that the world needs to tackle issues such as unemployment, child labor, slavery, and the right to join a trade union. The UN agency specialized on matters of work in the world is the International Labour Organization. The ILO, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, is strongly supported by the international labour movement. Guy Ryder, a trade unionist, is the ILO's director general.
11: As we mark the World Day of Social Justice, global economic recovery hangs in the balance. Tipping that balance towards sustainable growth, and development means tackling social injustice. And my message today cannot be better expressed than in the words of the ILO's 1919 Constitution, that lasting peace can be established only if it is based on social justice. Today, there is a pervasive sense of deep injustice that the weakest are being asked to sacrifice the most. Social justice is multidimensional. But as in the late 19th century, the world of work is now at the center of discontent and must be an integral part of the solution in shaping a different, more just global order for the future. Social and economic inequalities in their multiple forms are rising. Some 200 million women and men are unemployed. A further 870 million women and men A quarter of the world's working people are working, but unable to lift themselves and their families above the $2 a day per person poverty line. Some 74 million young women and men have no jobs. Youth unemployment is at dramatic levels in a number of countries, particularly in in Europe and in North Africa. And the length of time young people are remaining idle is increasing and the scars of youth unemployment, as we know, can last a lifetime. Alongside jobless young women and men, child labour persists. So too does forced labour. In seeking to escape the traps of joblessness and poverty at home, too many women and men are falling into the traps of human traffickers in modern forms of slavery. 80% of the world's population lacks adequate social security coverage, and more than half have no coverage at all. Discrimination in its many manifestations is holding back hundreds of millions, especially women, from realizing their potential and contributing on an equal footing to the development of our societies and our economies. And in many countries, working women and men seeking to exercise their right to organize freely, to uphold justice and dignity at work, are prevented from forming and joining trade unions. Stepping up the global struggle for social justice is the right thing to do.
4: Now, here is the New Harmony Sisterhood Band with Union Made.
5: There, what's with the Union made. The the day I die.
4: Hey! And that's it, international labor news you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
0: Okay, that was Radio Labor and uh, the New Harmony Sisterhood. You can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. Let's turn now to teacher strikes, okay? Of all the places you would think where teachers would get together and, and demand better treatment, more money for their students, for their schools, it might it where would it be? Okay, well, West Virginia. Let's start there. West Virginia strikes again, defeating privatization bill in a single day. West Virginia teachers and school employees struck for the second time in a year, successfully defeating an education bill that would have opened the state's first charter schools. Attacked teacher seniority and created education savings, ESAs, and school vouchers that divert public funds to private schools. Don't start those buses tomorrow, said Joe White, executive director of the West Virginia School Service Personnel Association. He was announcing the second statewide education strike in West Virginia in a year. Alongside the leaders of the state's two teachers' unions, West Virginia teachers emboldened educators across the country last year when they struck to defend their health insurance and win raises. But when the legislature returned this January, hostile legislators brought forth an omnibus education bill. Would have opened the state's first charter schools, attacked teacher seniority, and created education savings accounts and school vouchers to divert public funds to private schools. Although the bill also included pay raises, funds for rising health insurance costs, and more money for public education, educators were not fooled. They could see it was designed to suck funds from public schools and open the door. To privatizers. West Virginia, Oklahoma, Colorado, and now Oakland, California. Here's a video from the first day of the teacher strike in Oakland.
6: No
12: more. We have been bargaining for two years from the district, very little movement from the district.
11: What they're trying to focus on is just the pay raise and it's just like that's not all we're asking for. We're asking for smaller class sizes as well.
0: We've seen students and families come out here to support teachers. All morning long, well, too many teachers uh, across California
10: are working in class sizes that are too big, uh, for paychecks that are too small. And the teachers here, many of them who are my constituents uh, in the East Bay, have not had raises for over five years. So I'm I'm here uh, walking with them and fighting for them. Can't take it no more. Can't
6: take it no more.
0: Okay, the teachers in Oakland have been greatly helped by the participation of arts organizations. Power of youth, power of educators, the power of labor, the power of community, the power of the art build. Statement by Keith Brown, president of the OEA, Oakland Education Association. Surrounded by a hundred teachers and supporters painting banners, screen printing, fabric picket flags, and learning strike songs, Oakland Teachers Union President Keith Brown held a press conference and announced that Oakland teachers would hold a strike vote. For the last two months, a massive strike-ready art-making collaboration between the Oakland Education Association local artists, and a team of arts organizers has been building momentum, participation, and created thousands of pieces of handmade art that has been used in public actions leading up to a strike. Okay, so this is where art was a uh, Arundati Roy, who said that art... Help social justice movements by showing us the boundaries of the tyranny and keep Oakland open. There's an artist who's saying, who was asked, how did you start making art with teachers' unions? What impact or use did it have for teachers' fights? He says, I guess the beginning of my making art with teachers unions was bringing overpass Light Brigade messages to school board meetings. He goes on to talk about the Milwaukee teachers organization. So that strike is ongoing. Been on strike now for three days. So if you have time and you're so inclined, take a drive over to Oakland. Call up the OEA and see where people are picketing. They're picketing actually different schools or going around different parts of the district. Remember, they're on strike there in your name. And against privatization. What's the difference between a private, privatized school, a charter school? Isn't it still under the auspices of the school board? Well, yes or no. In a lot of situations, charter schools are granted an immunity from lots and lots of the restrictions that public schools have. But the key to it all is that public schools are community controlled. It's a democratic structure, even if it's not always democratically carried out. Public schools are your schools. Charter schools belong to the corporations that they serve. Okay. Let's see here. Looking for uh, Sam Cooke. Let's play some Sam Cooke. Hmm. Well, here's a Philip Randolph. Philip Randolph.
6: The
12: first condition of being worthy of help from others is for an individual, race, or nation to do something for itself. I consider the fight for the black masses to be the greatest service that I can render to my people. And the fight alone is my complete compensation. My name is A. Philip Randolph. The A stands for Acer. I was born April 15, 1889, in Crescent City, Florida. I am the youngest of two sons, and both my mother and father were the descendants of slaves. I began my political career in the socialist politics of the 1920s Harlem Renaissance. I have long fought for equal opportunity for black workers and for economic progress for all workers through trade unions, regardless of race, color, nationality, sex, or political or religious beliefs. Not everyone agreed with the vision of racial progress through militant struggles, for economic independence. In the tough stages of organizing the first march on Washington to integrate the country's defense industries in 1941, for instance, Arthur W. Mitchell, then a black representative of the U.S. Congress from Chicago, called me the most dangerous Negro in America. In 1925, and many other brothers and sisters across the United States, undaunted and unafraid, fired by the vision of better days of economic justice, organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in the sacred name of truth and righteousness against the Pullman companies' despotic company union known as the Employees' Representation Plan, which is company organized, company owned, and company controlled. This was considered the first major effort to unionize the Pullman Company. In the eyes of some people, the effort to organize the Pullman porters appeared to be too Herculean. Yes, visionary. in Thomas's rushed forward to advise that it was impracticable, suicidal. Organization and made it possible for the Brotherhood to present the porters' case, despite the unlawful intimidation practiced by the company upon the porters to compel them, the porters, to act against their own interests. The porters are standing strong, and in from, from coast to coast, have resolutely signified their desire to push forward with their fight to secure. and manhood rights. Mm -hmm. Our goal is victory. We will win victory. The Pullman Company may delay us, but they cannot defeat us. Ours will be a victory for solidarity, a victory for truth, a victory for justice, a victory for courage, a victory for manhood a victory for righteousness, a victory for the race. If white men have to organize to get more wages, then surely race men will have to organize to get more wages and better working conditions. Out of the miserable depths of indescribable economic wage pauperism, the brotherhood of Pullman Porters. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters is steadily raising the Pullman Porters and Maids to a high plane of challenging and commanding power. The Brotherhood came with a definite industrial plan to provide supper and solace to the distracted, disheartened, disorganized, and despairing poor We struggled with the company for 12 long years. The post Company was the most powerful business organization in the country and viciously resisted every effort to unionize. We had many setbacks, but the Brotherhood prevailed. The Brotherhood's courageous battles won the admiration of many labor and liberal leaders. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal guaranteed workers the right to organize and required corporations to an international charter. In 1937, the Brotherhood, which remained in the AFL, finally was given a contract from the Pullman Company, the
11: first contract between a company and a black union.
12: 1937 was the end of one struggle and the beginning of many others from organizing for jobs on the home front during World War II, to the fight for desegregation of the armed forces, the defense industries, and government jobs, to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, where I stood along with some of the other organizers of the March on Washington, Byron Rustin, Roy Wilkins, James Farmer, Whitney Young, John Lewis, and Dr. A large demonstration of the history of this nation. Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob.
1: Onde What you gonna do?
0: Sam Cooke with uh, A Change Is Gonna Come um, Cooke's genius is that he's able to summarize in, in one song in a three minute ten second song the experience of an entire people I was born by the river he opens and uh, goes on from there Sam Cooke the subject of uh, Netflix Biop- biography, I'm not sure. I have to check that out. Before that, we had The Prophets of Rage with Tom Morello and Chuck D. We are The Prophets of Rage, preceded by Nina Simone, the great Nina Simone, singing Blues for Mama. we already spoke about we already had a a little bit of a feature about A. Philip Randolph I want to talk about some other famous labor leaders African American labor leaders A. Philip Randolph of course Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters local connection with uh C.W. Dellums, who was the vice president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And uh, A.W. Nixon, one of the leaders of the Montgomery Bus Boycott and uh, employer of Rosa Parks. And uh, talking about Velma Hopkins now. Velma Hopkins. Just read this little blurb. Tobacco was king in Winston-Salem. That's Winston-Salem, North Carolina. A paternal entity in nearly everyone's life, providing schools, hospitals, parks, and, of course, jobs, writes the Winston-Salem Monthly. African-Americans, however, chaffed at the wage disparities between the races. Higher-paying jobs were nearly impossible for blacks, to obtain at R.J. Reynolds, and women were also paid less across the board. Velma Hopkins and a few others sounded a call to action in 1943, beginning a month-long strike at R.J.R. and culminating in the first and only labor union ever at that company. The courage of Hopkins is incredible when one thinks about how oppressive 1943 was for blacks who tried to fight the system. It was 22 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1965, 11 years before the Brown versus Board of Education, 12 years before the Montgomery bus boycott. Velma Hopkins. Hattie Canty. called one of the greatest strike leaders in U.S history Hattie Canty was a strong voice for culinary workers in Las Vegas in 1984 she helped plan a 75-day strike in Las Vegas by Las Vegas casino workers and in 1990 she was elected president of the Las Vegas Hotel and Culinary Workers Union local 226. According to Wikipedia, as president, she led a number of publicized strikes including a 1991 strike where Canty led 550 culinary workers from New Frontier Hotel and Gambling Hall in protest of unfair labor conditions. The strike was the longest labor strike in American history and lasted for six-and-a-half years. And of course, we note Martin Luther King, junior, 1961, gave a powerful speech to the AFL-CIO convention. Our needs are identical with labor's needs, he said. Decent wages, fair working conditions, livable housing, old age security, health and welfare measures, conditions in which families can grow, have education for their children, and respect in the community. Whether it be the ultra-right wing in the form of the Burke Society, kind of the precursors of the uh, Tea Party or the alliance which former president eisenhower denounced the alliance between big military and big industry or the coalition of southern dixiecrats and northern reactionaries whatever the form these menaces now threaten everything decent and fair in american life their target is labor liberals and the negro people and we could throw in a lot of others too So, this is the Labor 411 website. Check it out yourself. See what you think. I want to talk a little now about a, a sports figure. We don't talk a lot about sports on this show, but it's obvious that sports and labor conditions and labor concerns... Um, come together ball players have one of the best labor unions in the country and they needed it at the time Uh, beat about this a whole new ball game about Marvin Miller anyway Frank Robinson grew up born in Beaumont Texas grew up in Oakland uh, Dave Ziron on Edge of Sports writes, first of all, let, let's get this out of the way. Robinson was one of the greatest top ten all-time ball players. The uh, only player who won the most valuable player awards in both leagues, playing for Cincinnati and then Baltimore, won the Triple Crown, home runs, runs batted in, batting average. Became the first black manager in Major League Baseball history after taking over the Cleveland Indians. Through all of these recollections, it's been made clear that this man was as tough as a $3 (laughs) stake, and could be ornery as anyone when there was a call for him to be the intimidator carried himself with a fierce dignity on the field and then knocked down the doors into the major league dugout. It can also be seen in the love and respect given by two of his legendary contemporaries, Henry Aaron and Robinson's high school basketball teammate, Bill Russell. Frank Robinson and I were more than baseball buddies, Aaron said. We were friends. Frank was a hard-nosed baseball player who did things on the field that people said could never be done. Bill Russell adds, Heartbreaking news in the passing of my dear friend and McClyman's high school classmate, Frank Robinson. It was my pleasure and a great honor to have known him. Robinson called out the hypocrisy of a league that celebrates Jackie Robinson while engaging in progress best described as glacial. He said, "If Frank Robins, if Jackie Robinson were alive and willing today, would the Lords of Baseball be likely to admit him to their ranks?" No. He was too controversial, too honest. He'd create too many problems by speaking up and speaking out. White management doesn't like black people to speak their minds. The great Frank Robinson. All right, let's, let's take a look now at Microsoft Workers. Microsoft workers, dozens of Microsoft workers have signed a letter protesting the company's $480 million contract to supply the U.S. Army with augmented reality headsets intended for use on the battlefield. Under the terms of the deal, the headsets, which place holographic images into the wearer's field of vision, would be adapted to increase lethality by enhancing the ability to detect, decide, and engage before the enemy. Microsoft was awarded the contract in November. We are a global coalition of Microsoft workers and we refuse to create technology for warfare and oppression. Bill Gates, who sort of sold to us as kind of this good guy... Ge- computer genius, uh, benevolent purveyor of money for charter schools mostly, um, signed this probably very lucrative contract. Microsoft employs almost 135,000 people worldwide. The workers said, we are alarmed that Microsoft is working to provide weapons, technology to the U.S. military, helping one country's government increase lethality using tools we built. We did not sign up to develop weapons, and we demand a say in how our work is used. The open letter comes days before Microsoft is expected to unveil HoloLens 2, an upgraded version of its augmented reality headset. Microsoft workers not having it. All right, before we get back to the labor beat, let's uh, play some music. Bob Marley.
13: Con man coming with this con We won't take no pride. We've got to stay alive. We're gonna chase those crazy chase those.
8: Conference acknowledges the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade in 1808. I decided to try to talk about the meaning of freedom. The conference theme emphasizes 200 years of freedom. Now, what has that freedom? meant for people of African descent? What has that freedom meant for the black world? And what has been the relationship to communities that are differently racialized, but nonetheless uh, suffer under these cycles of oppression? I suppose that very few people think about the fact that the institution of the prison has claimed a place at the very core, at the very heart of black history, particularly since the abolition of slavery. It has been a constant theme in the collective lives of black people in this country. It has also been a constant theme in the collective lives of Chicanos, and it is increasingly a major aspect of the lives of people who are racially oppressed in Europe, but also in Latin America. And if one looks at the extent to which the institution of the prison is beginning to replace on the continent of Africa, institutions like educational institutions, healthcare institutions. Now, when Carter G. Woodson proposed in 1926 that a week be set aside for the celebration of Negro History Week, he was confronting a dominant culture that almost totally marginalized black accomplishments. And it was important to transmit the message that we were capable of vastly more than white supremacist society attributed to black communities. And then, of course, a half century later, the celebration was extended to the entire month. Uh, And the month of February offers us a kind of microcosm of the um, history of the black world. Uh, February is the month, as far as uh, the United States of America is concerned, when the 15th Amendment, which authorized black suffrage, um, black male suffrage, uh, And I guess I should say parenthetically that it's very interesting, isn't it, how those debates uh, that happened in the 19th century are being replayed under contemporary conditions. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that before uh, we leave today. But I was talking about the month of February. The Freedmen's Aid Society was founded in February. W.E.B. Du Bois was born in February, February 23rd. 1868. And if I remember correctly, I think uh, that was the day I got out on bail. I got out of jail. But but it was also during the month of February that W.E.B. Du Bois convened the first Pan-African Congress in 1919 to urge people of African descent throughout the world to unite, not simply because they were of African descent, but to unite in order to stand up against European imperialism. February was also the month when SCLC, Martin Luther King's organization was established. When the students staged sit-ins at the lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, that was in February of 1960. We could actually do a, you know, continue to do a whole panorama of, uh, of, of, of black history by looking at what happened in the month of February. Uh, what I'd like to say now is that Black History Month seems to have become an occasion to generate profit. Look at, look at the Walmart website, Walmart, which is the largest corporation in the world, and look at how they urge you to celebrate black history by buying their products. Well, you know, I could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about Walmart. Uh, because I think, uh, you know, Walmart, as the largest corporation in the world, uh, oh I- indicates the impact that global capitalism has had on our lives. And, the conditions of neoliberalism under which we live and think uh, uh, mean that capitalism has insinuated itself into our very desires and our dreams and our ways of thinking about ourselves. We commodify ourselves uh, when we talk about how are we are going to market ourselves, right? Uh, so keep that in mind, um, uh, as we go back and look at um, some aspects of of black history. And we most frequently celebrate Black History Month in, in a couple of ways. By evoking a collection of narratives about individual black people who managed to overcome the barriers created by the racism of the past. Whereas we should have a broader conception of what it means to celebrate the legacies of black history and those legacies should not be confined simply to people of African descent. I mean, I'm thinking of someone like um, Yuri Koshyama, Uh, who is a Japanese-American woman who has, for the overwhelming majority of her life, and she's about 82 years old now, she's worked in the civil rights movement, she's worked to free political prisoners, she was with Malcolm X when he was assassinated, and there's a picture of her cradling Malcolm X's head in her hands as he lay dying, and we don't necessarily bring Yuri Koshyama into our celebrations of Black History Month. Or Elizabeth Petita Martinez, who was one of the most amazing activists in the early civil rights movement. Uh, now. We celebrate individuals, but we also evoke the legislative and court victories that uh, have helped to produce a black subject that putatively enjoys equality before the law. And therefore we rightly celebrate the abolition of the slave trade in 1808. And we also celebrate the 13th Amendment that we think abolish slavery. <laughs> and we celebrate the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which uh, you know, one of the candidates' candidates insisted was uh, uh, the work of could only be the work of a president uh, <laughs> the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, many of these legislative moments were attempts to confront the vestiges of slavery, to eradicate the vestiges of slavery. I decided, since the theme of this conference um, acknowledges the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade in 1808, I decided to try to talk about the meaning of freedom. The conference theme emphasizes 200 years of freedom. Now, what has that freedom meant for people of African descent? What has that freedom meant for the black world? And what has been the relationship to communities that are differently racialized but nonetheless Uh, suffer under these cycles of oppression. I suppose that very few people think about the fact that the institution of the prison has claimed a place at the very core, at the very heart of black history, particularly since the abolition of slavery. It has been a constant theme in the collective lives of black people in this country It has also been a constant theme in the collective lives of Chicanos, and it is increasingly a major aspect of the lives of people who are racially oppressed in Europe, but also in Latin America. And if one looks at the extent to which the institution of the prison is beginning to replace on the continent of Africa, institutions like educational institutions, healthcare institutions. Now, when Carter G. Woodson proposed in 1926 that a week be set aside for the celebration of Negro History Week, he was confronting a dominant culture that almost totally marginalized black accomplishments and it was important to transmit the message that we were capable of vastly more than white supremacist society attributed to black communities. And then, of course, a half century later, the celebration was extended to the entire month. Uh, And the month of February offers us a kind of microcosm of the um, history of the black world. Uh, February is the month as far as Uh, The United States of America is concerned when the 15th Amendment, which authorized black suffrage, um, black male suffrage, uh, and I guess I should say parenthetically that it's very interesting, isn't it, how those debates uh, that happened in the 19th century are being replayed under contemporary conditions. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that before uh, we leave today. But I was talking about the month of February, the Freedmen's Aid...
0: Okay, that's it. We had, uh, of course, Angela Y. Davis, who just recently was awarded a citation uh, from a civil rights organization in North Carolina, and because of her uh, criticism of U.S. funding of the Israeli terrorist war on Palestinians was denied. They took it back. But uh, there was such an uproar that uh, the organization re-awarded it to her. Before that, we had Fruit of Labor, a North Carolina group of musicians and cultural workers who are dedicated to democracy in North Carolina. Their song was called War or We Ain't Ready. And uh, that was preceded by Bob Marley's We're Gonna Knock Those Crazy Baldheads Out of Town. 11.41 Coming up on Well, next show is uh, my buddy Scott Walker with uh, The Flat Black Plastic Show. I want to say something about the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, the fourth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. 50 comics, 25 shows, five days from March 1st to March 5th. That's coming right up. That's this week. Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street at... Florida come on down Mutiny Radio is a true community arts organization and the annual comedy festival here is one of the real highlights of the underground comedy movement here in San Francisco and throughout the Bay Area people come from all over from all parts of the country to participate so come on down be here all right let's place a little bit more music and then we'll get out of here and hand you over to Scott Walker Uh, let's see okay we are dedicating this show to black history month as I said earlier this is the sashimi approach to history Instead of presenting the whole fish and just saying it's history, we have to cut it up. We have to cut it up in the black history. We have to cut it up in the women's history. We have to cut it up in the white history, which passes for universal history. History happens all together.
14: Just for the wait, dear. Bet you Mac Heath's back in town. Look a year, Louis Miller disappeared, dear. After drawing out his cash, and Mac Heath spends like a sailor. Did our boy do something rash? Suki Toddrey, Jenny Diver, Lottie Lenya, Sweet Lucy Brown, all oh, the line forms on the right. Dears, now that Maggie's back in town, take it, Satch.
0: Was Armstrong with Mac the knife? Let's read one of our credos. A couple of our credos here. Can I tell you a secret? It's from really American on Facebook. Can I tell you a secret? What's the secret? I don't even care if there are undocumented immigrants in this country. Can I tell you that secret? We've also got, with social sec- without Social Security numbers, they aren't even privy to the welfare that people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a life, a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals bullshit is just the 1%, convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor or the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing that the reason they are all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. True. Since 1980, our productivity has gone way up as workers, but our wages have been flat. All that money's being taken. Please use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. And let's see the other one. You know, there's always somebody who says they're just not into politics. So you're just not that into politics? Your bosses. Your landlord is. Your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Time to get back. Get into politics. Okay, well that about does it for our show today. This is the b AKA Bill Morgan with a Labor and Love Show the show where we tell you how it is one person gets a dollar they didn't work for someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get if you don't have a seat at the table the negotiating table that is where you work you're on the menu and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor and when i say labor i mean you labor and love radio where the labor meets the road
2: Of swimming through a sea, a podcast? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat!
9: Asiento. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryan. Meet friends for a drink.
5: to Mutiny Radio at fm. it's a great place to listen to crazy things
7: subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco in the Bay Area subliminal SF
9: karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2pm. Their happy hour goes till 7pm. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Barn Grill.
6: (laughs)
7: It's a cash car. Flat Black, Black Classic, Beauty Radio. Radio cash again.
10: It's a Black, Black Classic.